Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Stephanie Dre, New York Times bestselling author of America's First Daughter, among many other books that she's written. And it's really quite amazing. And I'm extremely thrilled to have you here today, Stephanie. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here and very grateful, too. Oh, it's awesome. You're a powerhouse author at the moment. You've been doing so much. And I just would love to quickly backtrack before we start talking about your great upcoming book about your journey. Uh, You started out working in writing about Egypt, ancient Egypt, right? And so tell me how that went, what happened and, you know, give us a story. Okay. Um, On my honeymoon, I was in the airport and I picked up a giant book by Margaret George called The Memoirs of Cleopatra. And my husband was very jealous of that book because here we were on our honeymoon and I could not pull myself away from the pages. Uh, I was absolutely intrigued by the Queen of the Nile. And when I reached the end of the book, I realized that there had been a a daughter with uh, Mark Antony and she had gone on to become a queen. And I was so fascinated to realize that I had never heard of her and almost no one I knew had ever heard of her. And so I became obsessed. I had to know more. And as I delved into her life, I found the story of a young woman who was a legacy builder, somebody who had to repair her parent, the legacy of her parents and who really strived to reestablish a lost world. And that moved me. She is not as famous as her mother because I think she was quite a well-behaved woman and they tend not to make history, but she was a very successful queen and I was able to write three books about her life. And so how did you then go from that to what was next after that? America's First Daughter. Oh, yeah. Okay. What led to that? Okay. So it seems like a big jump from the ancient world to Jeffersonian America. But for me, it was pretty natural, in part because I love to write about revolutions and revolutionary eras. And the contest between Egypt and Rome was one of those turning points in history where we definitely uh, saw the end of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. And it felt intellectually natural to go to the rise of of a new American Republic thereafter. But it wasn't all an intellectual exercise. What had happened is I was at a writer's conference with my very dear friend, Laura Kamoy, and she was teaching history at the U.S. Naval Academy at the time. And we were talking about a seminar that she was teaching about Thomas Jefferson. And we got to chatting and and I said, there's just been so much written about Thomas Jefferson but there's got to be an unexplored angle. And the more we discussed it, we realized that the story of his daughters had not been told. And more importantly, we knew as Americans, Jefferson's story as a founding father, but we didn't know his story as a father. 
And we got so excited that we raced back to my hotel room that night at the conference. And we were up until at least three or four in the morning researching. And we decided right then and there that we were going to write that book and that we were going to write it together. And that was a lot of hubris, considering that neither of us had ever collaborated on such a project before. But I had really wanted to explore this, but I was not an expert on American early revolutionary history, whereas Laura was an early American scholar. And she had never written a book of historical fiction before, whereas I had. So we felt like we could merge our experiences. And thus, America's First Daughter was born. That's an amazing story. How was it? How did you work together exactly? Not precisely, but how did it work? Yeah, we got really lucky. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that because I have since been involved in other collaborations that are not as smooth running. (laughs) Laura and I are very compatible when it comes to writing together. We have complementary styles, but not the same style. We each fill in uh, gaps that the others have. We have strengths that the other one doesn't have. And we speak the same language. We can talk about a scene and we know exactly what the other person means. Mm -hmm. We approach the project with a lot of humility in terms of not being very possessive about our words. For example, our initial process was we would write alternating chapters and then swap them, and then edit freely, so that the words weren't my words or Laura's words, but they were Patsy Jefferson's words. Hmm. And fortunately for both of us, we almost always saw each other's changes and thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly right, except all. Occasionally, when we did have a dispute, we would hash it out And I think in all but one instance, we came up with a better third solution than either of us had come up with on our own. And the the only disagreement we couldn't solve, we just had our editor decide. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. What are the, you touched on it a little, but what are the pros and cons of writing on your own and writing with a co-author? Now that I've done both, I would say that writing with a co-author is a lot less lonely. You know, as a historical fiction author, you know that we become absolutely obsessed with our subjects and we get very excited about little historical finds. And there's really only so much excitement that an outsider can share about that. I have a very patient husband, but He was not as excited by the research as Laura was. If I could find some little thing about Patsy Jefferson or eventually Eliza Hamilton in My Dear Hamilton, I could share it with her and she would squeal and we would squeal together. And so that was a lot of fun. It was so much fun to have somebody who cared just as much as you did about all of the minutiae of the story. Also, it gives you... A bit of security because you aren't relying only on your own talents. You have another big brain to put to work on your story. And fortunately, my co-author is a very intelligent lady, so I highly value her big brain. Another advantage is probably that you can double your marketing work. When you're promoting the book, now you have two people 
who can be in more than one place at one time. We often would split up on tour, do our own uh, events. So we could do twice as many. And of course, online, you have twice as much uh, marketing power. So those are the advantages. I guess the disadvantages are that if you if you don't have a really great working relationship, it can be a very frustrating experience. And sometimes, of course, you don't get your own way. You might think, well, that sentence is gorgeous. Why won't she like it? <laughs> and sometimes you have to compromise. But when you're working on your own work, you can hold the line. Yeah, no, I, that all makes total sense. And But one, I would think, one really big advantage is having ongoing feedback being able to share and and get that as you're going instead of thinking, is this okay? Is this going to be good? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I often say that Laura is my first reader Mm -hmm. and I'm always writing to impress her. So it it makes you raise your game, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want your very valued partner to not be impressed. So you, you give it more oomph. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fascinated by that, as I said. But the purpose of this really is to talk about your upcoming book, your forthcoming book, which is The Women of Chateau Lafayette. Yes. <laughs> I see this, I can see the kind of repercussions, the the connections, but do you wanna I'd love to hear a little bit about what inspired you to to go to this particular thing, which we'll um, talk about is really a wonderful, it's a tour de force of form and voice in my view. So tell me a little bit about how you came to writing this novel. I'm going to tell you the special insider story. Uh, All the stories that I tell about this are true, but they come from slightly different angles. The insider story is that I had wanted to write a novel about Adrienne Lafayette for a very long time. She felt like a natural stepping stone because I had written about Patsy Jefferson's journey in America's First Daughter and Eliza Hamilton's journey in My Dear Hamilton. And both of those women deeply admired uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. And he also played a fundamental role in their lives when both of them were having a very hard time. And when I realized that he himself had a wife who was extraordinary, I really wanted to tell the story of our French founding mother. Hmm. Unfortunately, at the time that I was thinking about this, my agent at the time said, you can't write about her. First of all, she's not American. She wasn't a queen. And she didn't even get her head cut off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! she said I wonder if there's something that you could write during World War II because at the time that was the emerging subgenre that was quite popular which just goes to tell you that or it's a good indication of how long ago I was thinking about this story that it Mm -hmm. was just then Mm -hmm. people were thinking oh maybe World War II But I had never written in World War II before. And so I was thinking about the conception of the story. And I was talking to my very dear friend, Kate Quinn. And I complained to her and I said, if only there was some connection between Lafayette and the Nazis, I'd be all set. (laughs) 
And this thought just kept niggling at the back of my brain. And I kept thinking, I wonder if there is some connection. So I started doing a little research and almost immediately stumbled over the fact that Lafayette's birthplace, his chateau in Chavagnac, had been used as a sanctuary to hide Jewish children during the Holocaust. And when I read that, I immediately became very emotional because I just was so touched to find that this man who had dedicated himself to the cause of human rights and his wife who dedicated herself to the same had left this legacy so that their home could be used in such a beautiful way in the future. And then came an even more shocking surprise. I was very moved by this and I thought, okay, I'm going to tell this story about this house in two eras. But how did this happen? How did this chateau become a refuge for children? And I found out that an American heiress had, and her uh, wealthy friend had purchased the home in World War One and converted it to an orphanage for displaced and refugee children. And I wanted to know who those women were. And I looked them up. And one of them, of course, was a woman named Beatrice Chandler. And I thought, Beatrice Chandler, where do I know that name? That name seems so familiar to me. And I looked right up over my desk where I have a bookshelf. And I saw a book on that shelf by Beatrice Chandler. And it was a book called Cleopatra's Daughter. It was the very first research book that launched my career and started my Cleopatra's Daughter series. Wow. was her biography of Cleopatra. And yes, wow. it was the same woman. And I shrieked as if this story had been waiting for me to discover it all along. And so at that point, I knew that this was a story about three women who all found a home at Lafayette's birthplace and who preserved it in three of history's darkest hours. Wow. <laughs> I'm all for quit. I, I know. I'm, I was very touched. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I still am. I still am. It Even now that I've written the story, there's so much uh, more to think about and to tell. These were extraordinary women and their circumstances seem so relevant to ours now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's shift from that to craft because, okay. oh my goodness, I'm so impressed with how you managed to give each of those women their own voice. I could have opened the book at any point and started reading without knowing whose story it was and I would know right away. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed that? Yes, I did something that I will never do again. (laughs) (laughs) I decided that to keep the voices distinct, I would write the three stories separately and then figure out how to entwine them later. This, I think, did what I intended it to do, which was to preserve a certain cadence and way of speaking for example, Adrienne Lafayette in the 18th and 19th century has a very uh, formal way of speaking, very similar to the way that Eliza Hamilton spoke in My Dear Hamilton. And Beatrice 
let me skip over Beatrice. Adrian has that tone for Marta, my World War II heroine. She has a very snappy, sarcastic 1940s voice. For Beatrice, though, I had the advantage in that I had her letters. Mm. I had dis- discovered a cache of Beatrice's letters at the New York Historical Society. And I also was extremely fortunate in that I reached out to Beatrice's grandson, William Astor Chandler III, and he very generously shared with me personal family letters. And so I was able to incorporate a lot of Beatrice's own words into her narrative. And so she sounds very much herself and she's far funnier than I am. So uh, all, all the witticisms in her chapters are all belong to her. Wow. Yeah. Now it, it really it comes across very well. So then you said you're never going to do this again. Why? <laughs> the why is that once I was done, I now had three stories and no story structure to twine them together. And so I had to first I wove together Beatrice and Adrian's story. And I started wondering if the World War II story was maybe even its own story because I realized that the book was getting long Mm. and I didn't think I could, I didn't want to give short shrift to any of these ladies. They were all so extraordinary that I needed to include them. So eventually we talk it through and we decided the book is just going to run a little long uh, because they all are part of the same story and part of the same legacy. And then we had to figure out what order these chapters came in. And I'll admit that was quite a struggle. One of the things that makes me giggle in some of the early reviews, as they've been very good reviews so far, knock on wood, but a number of them say she effortlessly weaves these points of view together. And I want to say, I assure you, it was not effortless. Many tears were spent. (laughs) in reordering these chapters over and over again until uh, eventually it made sense that Marta is the sort of framing story. She is the World War II heroine who needs the stories of the other two women to find her own courage to do what she does in saving the Jewish children. Hmm. Yeah, but that's the thing. When it's done really well, the reader thinks that it's all effortless, that, that <laughs> yes, that it just poured out of the author. Like you just sat down one day and wrote the book. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> oh, no, no. But yeah, no, that was something that really stood out to me. And you mentioned the letters and everything in that extraordinary circumstance that she wrote about Cleopatra's daughter. What other sort of, and the New York Historical Society, I had a we had a great conversation about research in my in the last podcast, and everybody gave their sort of favorite kind of research tips and tricks. And what are yours? I'm going to tell you a doozy of a story that came with the research for this book. When I first discovered Beatrice Chandler's letters, I started out with the family letters that her grandson shared with me. And the story arc seemed pretty obvious to me. It looked as if This was a very well-heeled, wealthy lady who had a struggling marriage, whose marriage somehow survived World War I and perhaps came out stronger because of it. 
And I thought, okay, I understand that story. And so I wrote that story. And then I went to the New York Historical Society and I found a cache of papers that were unlabeled except for they were in a, a Valentine's folder and they were from a French officer at the front. And it soon became obvious to me that this French officer seems to have been in love with Beatrice and it looked as if they might have had a secret relationship. Now, I wasn't entirely sure, so I took the family letters and I transcribed them and reordered them in a spreadsheet. And these two sets of letters fit like a zipper together. And I realized I had discovered a century-old secret love affair, uh, which is very awkward to tell the family, by the way, just (laughs) just to put out there. But I thought, okay, now the story is that this is a very wealthy philanthropic woman who found found love during World War I outside of her marriage. But for some reason, it didn't work out and she stayed with her husband. So now it's a tragic love story. So I wrote that story <laughs> and I thought all was well because the book was due. And mm-hmm. just before I was to turn it in, I got a phone call from Beatrice's grandson and he said, When you went to the New York Historical Society, you found a family tree that you didn't recognize and you sent it to me. What I didn't tell you is that I did recognize one of the names on that tree and I went down the research rabbit hole myself and I have discovered that my grandmother had a secret identity. She was not who she said she was. (laughs) She was, in fact, born under a different name. She was born into poverty. And she was lying about who she was her entire life. He was quite nervous, I think, about this. He thought perhaps readers would think poorly of his grandmother. Hmm. But I was immediately quite touched because suddenly Beatrice made sense to me in a way that she had never made sense to me before. I suddenly understood why this woman dedicated her whole life to saving orphan children because she mm-hmm. had been one. Yeah. And I was again deeply moved by that story. And so even though it meant that I had to rewrite the whole book a third time <laughs> <laughs> and I had <sighs> to get extension on my deadline, it made it a much more beautiful story and I felt like I got to tell Beatrice's truths for the first time. And so I, I'm very moved by that whole research experience and it really showed me the contributions that historical authors really can make because no one else would have asked those particular questions. Yeah. Oh, a lot to think about. And it's, it really is a gripping story. All three of the women have just incredibly powerful stories. And when does it, when does this book come out? It's going to come out in March of 2021. Okay. Great. I will definitely put all that stuff in the show notes and everything. But I also want to ask you, what's coming next? What are you working on? This one really rung me out. (laughs) I've been taking some time. I know that there will probably be another founding mother book in my future with Laura Kamoy to continue our founding mother series as it is. But as for my next solo novel, I'm not quite sure. So stay tuned. 
Yeah, there must be a point at which you feel so immersed in research that it's almost overwhelming. Yes, and especially when you have three heroines, it it did feel like writing three books. Uh, Yeah, and it's long enough to be three books, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty near, yeah. (laughs) But but it's enjoyable start to finish. It's a really page turner, (laughs) really. And, And that's not easy to do, as we all know. Yeah. Just to tie things up, would you, do you have any kind of words of wisdom or advice for other historical novelists, anything that you can, any, or anything else you want to talk about briefly or? Oh, goodness, advice. I think that it's important to find a story that you feel so passionately about that you can live with it for about a year, because I think that's about how long at least it generally takes to write a really strong work of historical fiction. There are some prodigies out there who do it faster. I don't happen to know any of them. Even Kate Quinn, who is herself a little prodigy, she generally uh, takes about a year to finish a novel. So you'll be living with these characters, these people, this time period for a long time. And if you're anything like me, there's going to come a time in your manuscript when you hate it, you wonder why you ever started this monstrosity. So if you don't have some sort of emotional touchstone, something to return to, it'll be harder to get through it. Every time that I felt really dispirited on this project, I was able to reach inside myself and and remember those moments when I was really moved to tears by the story of this amazing chateau and the women who defended it. That's great advice. And it's something I, I don't think people really understand, especially readers that it's like, when's your next book coming out? It takes a little bit of time. But but also the necessity for passion in whatever you write, because writing a book, whether it's contemporary or whatever, is hard work. It's really hard work. And you have to be completely bought into whatever story it is you're telling in order to get through it, for sure. Yeah. I even um, think it's hard work physically sometimes. And I don't think we talk about that as much. But writing a book forces you to sit and to hunch over and to type. and, And it does require a lot of endurance. And at least for me, sometimes even a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, I'm getting a pair of computer glasses because I can't, I've been getting headaches just looking at the computer screen. Definitely can be physically difficult and finding the right place to work and everything. Oh, and that's the other question I wanted to ask you. Okay. So I was definitely a person who, even though I have a, a lovely home with spaces where I can work, it can be very distracting to be at home and being, and trying to get into, in the zone. So I used to grab my iPad and go to the library or a cafe or whatever. And of course, that's not really something I can do right now. Have you had any similar, what's your way of writing and how do you work best and how has it changed during this pandemic period? I often write right here. You're looking at my office. Uh, (laughs) although our our listeners cannot see it. It's It's, really uh, nice. It's a really nice office with comfortable looking chairs. (laughs) (laughs) I write here. I have a nice view of the woods out my window, and that's the only daylight I see for long periods of time when I'm (laughs) writing a novel. 
I do sometimes, at least before the pandemic, I used to spend some time at Panera Bread where I would meet up with Laura Kamoy or my other writer friends, Eliza Knight and Kate Quinn. And I used to have sort of a standing date that we would meet at Panera. And that that gave us a little variety and a, a little change of scenery and creative spark. But with the pandemic, that's really not possible. I've just been staying at my desk and occasionally making use of my patio and my deck, having to rediscover the great outdoors. <laughs> but I do worry about the winter uh, coming because yeah. we're all going to be bundled up inside all the time. I know. I know. I'm not looking forward to winter at all. It's really good to be able to just sit and concentrate and get really deeply into what you're doing. And people who can do that definitely have a gift. <laughs> so, yeah. So one or the other. <laughs> oh, yeah. It could be that too. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, I don't want to keep you much longer. This was a really great discussion. I'm so excited to have learned all that stuff about the research and what you discovered. It's just amazing. And uh, yeah, I the book is fabulous, as I say, and I'm very fortunate to have been able to read it early on. And I will definitely shout it from the rooftops and everything like that. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to me. Thank you. Thank you very much for the chat. And thank you for all you do for books. Thank you. I, I do it because I love it. That's, you know, it's not a sacrifice to be able to talk to people like you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. Take care. Bye. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.